in your face. I've got the wonderful Vicky Spencer on the line, trans sociologist, activist, advocate and Bent TV presenter. Ricky, welcome back to the show. Hi everyone on Radio Lab. This like summery day. Ricky, it's so great to hear your voice. I thought of you often last week during Trans Awareness Week. You were really busy. What were you getting up to? Uh, well, I was actually doing a lot of writing for that time um, and preparing for quite a few, uh, you know, very important conferences and work I do. Uh, one of them is something to be, well, it is released now for everyone, that will uh, for the whole community. And that's the Pharmacy and Community Pilot that's um, part of the Steering Committee um, for the Health Issues Centre for the Department of Health in Victoria. What that is, James, is that people can now uh, access certain uh, prescriptions that they won't require to see their medical doctor to get. They can go at selected pharmacists and be able to say they're looking for contraception or certain uh, STIs, women will be able to access that um, in pharmacists, which, as you know, is uh, important for those who can't get to their local GP, um, especially in regional and rural remote areas where there is uh, sometimes the shortages of doctors. So that's uh, quite an important area. That must be, you know, life-saving for some people and certainly, you know, just must give them so much peace of mind to know that that mechanism's in place because if you don't go, if you don't get your medication, I mean, that can be disastrous. Absolutely, especially for um, the fact that um, for women, you know, if you're having to to get contraception and, you know, it's not always easy to see... Uh, make an appointment to see a doctor and sometimes you need to wait and it's important that um, we have access for that and, you know, utilising the services of pharmacists to have, you know, the sort of professional background in uh, uh, dispensary that they can assist. So it is a, a trial. It is only intellectual. And what I would suggest to people is just to hop on the, the Better Health channel and just, uh, key in Google uh, pharmacy pilot and then you can then see if your particular pharmacist or your uh, your nearest locality that has that. Ricky Spencer, you are in demand at the moment. Every time I see you online, it seems like you're on a new advisory body, uh, oh. a new steering committee. Can you tell us yes. what oh, are you yes. on at the moment? Oh, like, well, let me start. There's kind of look. I'm really excited to say that one that I really want to highlight today for the Victorian Sports and Recreation in looking into um, diversity and inclusion for people accessing sports and recreation in Victoria. So there's about 14 of us on the advisory panel representing those who have, for whatever reason, not felt safe or not felt like it's been accessible, whether it's been like you want to participate in a sport or whether you want to go to a recreational space and do some exercises but maybe feel that the settings, you know, are not supporting us, whether we, you know, with our disabilities or whether we're a bit older and those, you know, obviously transgender diverse from the queer community who just want, not quite sure if we're going to be welcoming. So what we're trying to do as a group is put together suggestions that the government can possibly consider um, to make it more, um, I guess, create spaces of inclusion 
that will allow for local areas to embrace diversity and have full participation in recreation. Because we know that the more that we go out and socialise and meet people and do some exercises, we're going to improve our health. Absolutely, and hopefully the government will listen. Do you think they will listen? Uh, well, look, I think things are changing. You know, recently we've had a lot of appointments. I mean, I know Tennis Australia, you know, has set up an LGBTIQ uh, reference group. Uh, we've had a lot of other sporting spaces. You know, there was an appointment um, recently of uh, a, a diverse panel of women in disabilities and women with diverse uh, LGBTIQ community representing at the um, federal level. So I think there is a greater understanding now that if you have people from all intersectionalities being safe and wanting to go and participate in a recreational event, the long-term sort of impact of that is that their health improves, their well-being improves, and people are then less likely to access our our health system, or especially our public health system, as you know, which is sometimes um, difficult to access when we've got so many people wanting to know. And, you know, we're dealing also with long COVID, so there is that sort of um, aspect as well. So many things are happening. So that's one that I really wanted to highlight to people. And so good that it's advising the federal government because often people say that's a bit of a weak link of government at the moment. You know, yes, they're doing some good things, but they're not doing enough. And compared to the Victorian state government, the federal government seems to be a little bit hesitant to kind of, you know, be really progressive on LGBTIQ issues. And that's unfortunate because there's so many gaps that need addressing. Absolutely. And the other big thing to highlight to everyone is that, you know, coming up very close now to International Day of Disability, there's quite a few events happening around town. Um, and I really wanted to highlight to your listeners that we've got a really big event happening at the Maribyrnong Council, uh, which I'm part of the Disability um, Inclusion Committee. And we have, I think it's Carly Finlay, who will be doing a a presentation, and that begins on web if people want to look at the Maribyrnong Council. It's a free event. I'd love you to come in here and meet some of us. Um, on now, Ricky, breaking up a little bit there. We were doing a bit of a movement thing. I know you're in your hallway. Maybe just move a little bit more. Cause, um, no worries, sir. Can you oh, hear me now? Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. That's loud well, and clear. Well, I'm great now, darling, because I'm in my sunny garden, so Garden of Joy. As I call it. And, and that, the other... Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, that Garden of Joy is beautiful. I've seen the videos of it, you know, on, on Facebook, on, on social media. I mean, that just must alleviate so much stress. I mean, you're a person living with a disability. You're a trans woman. Um, it must be a great outlet for you because, you know, life's tough. It is very tough. And, and the thing is, James, is that, you know, we all want to feel safe and connected. But what's so important when we get older is just having somewhere where I can just sit with my cat, read a book, uh, look at my flowers and really appreciate just being alive, you know. And at the moment, ha- having a place to rent that's affordable because that's my other passion area, as you know, affordability. And part of my work with the LGBTIQ uh, Reference Committee in um, with Healthy for the Age Action Group, these are one of our concerns of the sky rising rents in inner suburbs.
Yeah, we're going to be hearing from Gabrielle Dimitri in a little while about the rental crisis, but it's good to talk to you about it, Ricky, because you're on the disability support pension and so much of your income is going on rent. How do you survive? Well, it's just gone up, uh, I've heard. So I'm now almost approaching the $400 mark a week. Um, So what percentage of your fortnightly income goes on rent? uh, 79%. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, but I'm still privileged. You know, I'm still privileged to be able to rent because I think I've spoken to before, and this is probably something you may want to uh, raise with Gabrielle, is the impact. What we don't hear is about older women, older trans women and men trying to get a place where you don't have all your documentation affirming who you are. And then you're having to deal with perhaps the bias, maybe the conscious or unconscious bias of real estate agents and landlords who may not want to rent to people like us. Yeah, and I mean, that discrimination must just, you know, make it so hard to get a place. And if you're in a crisis and don't have housing, it's, you know, it's basically causing homelessness, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I would just say to anyone listening, you know, I'm, I'm a bit, oh, it's really pouring down here in West Footscray, by the way. Um, I don't know if you can hear the rain. But I was going to say, if people were to do a Google search on real estate, come at you, and if you go into my suburb, West Footscray, you will see that the cheapest two-bedroom house in West Footscray now is $540 a week. My gosh. And if you're on the and pension, how can you possibly afford that? And that is unrenovated. That's just like luxury with nice bathroom or kitchen. That is just a basic um, two-bedroom weatherboard house like where I am. So I'm still very privileged. You know, 400 is still affordable. But you see, well, not really affordable, but I have to make ends meet. And that's, that's the problem, James. It's like, where do we go, you know? At what point? Because rents are still accumulating. There's no, like, capping. There's no... You know how the government's announced that they were to give us an extra, I think it's $25 a week for a fortnight, sorry, for the uh, rental uh, subsidy to help pay for our private rent. Well, obviously that's had an effect. The NBN is putting their, um, what they call their prices up too, that they sell to, you know, our providers like Dota, all those, our internet private people that we uh, subscribe to get our NBN is going up. So I even received a, a email to say that our my monthly bill will now go up by ten dollars a month as a result of the increase. Yeah, I mean the hardship this is causing, this cost of living crisis and this rental crisis, means that even if people do get a place, uh, you know, and they're a low income person, then basically all of their income is going on rent and the bills, the internet, the gas, the electricity, the water, which means that people, even though they've got a roof over their head, you know, the quality of life goes down because they're basically imprisoned in their homes because they Absolutely. can't go anywhere. Absolutely. And, you know, for some of our community too who are trying to act with, you know, uh, gender affirming care, you know, to try and have to travel, you know, it costs you know, to, to travel to the spaces to get our care, you know, and see our specialists, you know, the, the, the out-of-pocket expenses, you know, you have to be paid. And unfortunately, you can't say to your doctor or specialist, oh, sorry, my rent's gone up, can I have a discount? Um, you have to pay it, you know. And for some people who are on medications and, 
uh, have to see specialists, you know, because it's a matter of, you know, surviving, um, you don't have a choice. You have to somehow manage that. So what happens is we go without. So, you know, food becomes a luxury now. Um, clothes becomes unaffordable. Uh, sustaining um, anything, you know, there's no such thing as going to dinner or movies or takeaway or anything because that's only for very wealthy people now. Yeah, so social interaction in real FaceTime and um, being able to afford to have those little kind of, you know, treats in life are becoming increasingly difficult for people. So you've got a real divide between the people who can afford to do it and those that that, that can't, resulting in further isolation for the most marginalised people in the community. And, and I mean, the other thing, I guess, that, that's a bit heartbreaking for me was here in like one of the... Uh, 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 commission house that has been um, is now going to be demolished, you know, in CBD, and that upsets me because one, our family is sitting there, and then there are people like myself and the community who are waiting on public housing lists. Like, what does that mean? I mean, if, if we're being told that the increase from a 12 to 15 year wait will now maybe increase for longer, because by the time the government you know, kind of build more affordable housing. So, you know, like, where do we go? You know, how do we factor in, you know, private rental increases and sustain that while we're waiting to find somewhere affordable? So it really is a complicated um, issue and that um, I'm hoping that, you know, we have people like your your guest who will come on and speak to see what steps can we do, you know, what can we do to really get the message out there? that we are in crisis and we need help. Absolutely, absolutely. Well said, Ricky. Ricky Spencer, it's a joy to hear your voice. I hope the rain stops soon in Footscray um, so you don't get drenched. Uh, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's always a joy to hear your voice. And it's so, thank you so much for having me, James, and your, your wonderful show and your wonderful listeners. Everyone keeps safe in the rain, not drive too quick if you can afford to have the luxury of a car and look after your pets to make sure they're safe inside. Absolutely. Take care, Ricky. Talk soon. You too. 3CR. Well, recently I spoke to Gabrielle Dvitri, the Green State Member for Richmond, about what the government is doing for renters during this rental crisis. Well, nothing much, really. I mean, they've tinkered around the edges in their, you know, housing statement that was long awaited and supposed to be the solution to everything. But they've, they're, they're doing some minor changes to the Residential Tenancies Act. But really, in essence, what they've decided to do is demolish all 44 of our remaining public housing towers, which is going to displace over 10,000 people over the next couple of decades. It's going to see nothing for the public housing waiting list. I mean, there's people who are going to be stuck in limbo for decades and it's going to put pressure on the entire housing system. And so renters, both private and public, are absolutely tearing their hair out because they know the situation right now is dire and the state government's plan is only going to make things worse. So there's a real need for renters to come together right now and to show the government that we are a growing, powerful force um, and that we won't settle for crumbs, that we, we that 
that they need stronger regulation, that we need rent controls right now to stop greedy landlords from just jacking up the rent by however much they like. I'm glad you mentioned greed because I was kind of horrified when I heard they were going to knock down the towers and replace them with a mix of social and private. And I thought there's going to be a a net loss of public housing in the state. Yeah, so the plan is basically there's 44 remaining public housing towers across the state. The plan is to demolish every single one of them, to sell off the land to private developers, to um, replace the public housing with social housing, which is, you know, what basically community housing association housing. It's not public housing. It doesn't have the same kind of rent controls and safety nets that public housing has. It's more expensive. It's more expensive. And, and, you know, you just don't have the same kind of oversight and protections that you do in public housing. And the rest of 95% of what will be rebuilt on that land of the additional stock will be private market rate housing. So they're going to be, you know, building over the basketball courts and the green space that both public housing residents and the broader community have have enjoyed for so long but 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 the worst thing about it is that basically this is going to be the end of public housing well, in Well, it destroys Victoria. community, doesn't it? I mean, there's been people who have lived there for decades. There's all that community infrastructure. Yeah. And that will be that will be changed and in some instances destroyed. Yeah. And unlike the government, we've actually sat down and met with public housing residents to understand how they feel about this. Uh, and they are absolutely distraught. Not only that they're Homes are going to be torn down. They found out on the same the same day that everyone else found out about this. So the government didn't consult? They didn't consult at all. They're distraught that their homes are going to be torn down, but they're mostly distraught about their communities being torn apart because we know from when the government has done this in the past and they've done it in North Melbourne, they've done it in um, at Walker Street in, in Northcote. If you go past that site right now, five years ago, public housing tenants were evicted. Right now, it's a... Uh, it's a graveyard it's just a flat uh, wasteland with a showroom by a private developer in the middle advertising to private purchases what they can get on this what was public housing land before so we know and the public housing residents who are evicted from those um, properties they get scattered hours and hours out from their community they lose their connections with their schools with their work with their local community um, there's no real sense of of retaining the important connections that they've had they just can't because they're because they're being relocated by a government that just doesn't care that's only looking at the value of the land and that and that believes that that land should be in the hands of wealthy property developers and not in public housing residents. And there's that theme of privatisation, which kind of taps into the soaring rents because, of course, you know, the private market needs to be regulated more. That's why you're calling for those, you know, those rent caps and a rent freeze because you can't really trust the private sector to kind of, you know, do that themselves. And yet we know who wrote this plan. We know that the people who wrote Labor's housing statement were the property developers and property investors. And Dan Andrews stood side by side with the Property Council when he made this announcement to the media about their plan to demolish the 44 public housing towers and their plan to do absolutely nothing for renters. Um, And so we know that they're in the pockets of these property, of the property class essentially. Um, And that's because, you know, they they want to hold on to power at all cost. They are thinking about uh, funding their next election campaign. Um, and what we need to do as a collective of, of renters and public housing residents um, and people who 
give a shit is show them that the power of renters and the power of this movement is stronger than the pull of their next election campaign funding. We need to we need to show them the impact of their decisions is going to be um, more detrimental than the loss of their um, you know, cosy relationship with their property developer mates. I mean, they've dug themselves a bit of a hole, haven't they? Because on the one hand, they're kind of, you know, bringing in all of these migrant workers to, you know, feed this, you know, greedy economy that we have. But on the other hand, they don't really have the coffers in the, the funds in the coffers to kind of, you know, fund the infrastructure that's needed to support that. Well, they're absolutely pulling the rug out from underneath the feet of renters. And, you know, they, they are turning a blind eye to the fact that one third of Victorians rent that number is growing as less and less people can even contemplate ever owning their own home and more and more people are, are perpetually renting. That number is going to grow and people are going to be facing housing stress and homelessness in bigger and bigger numbers. They can't ignore this for much longer. What's your electorate telling you? Because you've got a huge number of renters in your electorate. Yeah. Well, we um, have heard, we hear from renters every single day. And, you know, we know on the stats, rents are going up by around 18% a year at the moment. But that's an average. So if you think about it, to get that average, we've got people who are getting rent rises of 30, 40, 50%. How are people supposed to deal with that? We've got people coming to us saying, that there's absolutely no way that they can absorb that kind of cost, but then they're terrified about going out and looking for another place because they know that there is hardly anywhere that's affordable. I mean, the Anglicare report showed that there are zero properties in Victoria that are considered affordable for a single parent on job seeker payments. Zero. We need to make sure that everyone has a safe and affordable home and the private market has absolutely failed us. The government is in denial about their role in regulating the private market and their role in building public housing. It's abundantly clear what needs to happen to be able to make sure that people have a safe and secure home. People are telling us in my electorate also about substandard properties like mould, damp, we heard someone to the rental crisis inquiry that, that we established in Parliament tell us about waking up and her clothes in her wardrobe were wet because the humidity and damp, rising damp in her in her apartment was so, so bad. Um, Duna covers going mouldy, sitting on the bed. Some of the standards that people are being forced to live in because that's all that they can afford are absolutely horrendous. And we have minimum standards in our legislation right now but we have a government unwilling to enforce even the standards that we've got right now, and they're patting themselves on the back. Why are they refusing to enforce their own regulations? Because the voice of the property class is so strong, and they are, you know, they are hearing from uh, landlords and property investors and property developers. Um, they're talking about how um, it will basically. Th there's this really. Um, kind of persistent argument about investor flight. You know, if you put uh, if you put standards on rental properties, or if you uh, regulate how much, you know, if you make unlimited rent increases illegal, well, you know, property investors are just going to leave the market in droves, and they leave the argument there. But anyone, you know, anyone with half a mind is going to realize that if an investor 
doesn't buy and mostly we see investors buying existing homes the the vast majority of of property investors don't don't pay for new homes to be built they buy up existing homes if you take investors out of that equation you've suddenly got owner occupiers who are much, at a much better position to be able to actually purchase their own properties and that takes pressure off the rental market properties don't just disappear because investors don't want to buy them anymore it it it's just an illogical argument that if an investor doesn't buy a property that that's actually going to um, hurt renters in the end I mean, the scenarios you're describing basically are leading to mass homelessness, really. If people can't afford rent and they're on, say, fixed incomes on the DSP or on, you know, job seeker, whatever, yeah. you know, that's going to result in uh, massive homelessness and huge social problems where people aren't going to want to invest in areas because of all the poverty. Absolutely. I mean, right now we've got 82% of renters across Australia experiencing housing stress. That is, they're paying more than 30% of their income on their housing. And you see some of the people that we've heard from paying up to 90% of their yeah, income people on, on the housing. DSP. I yeah. mean, you know, say if your rent is, you know, $750 a fortnight on the DSP, that's almost all of it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And we know that, you know, people who are um, – people who are – existing at other intersectionalities are experiencing the rental crisis like disproportionately as well you know whether it's people from the lgbtiqa plus community people with a disability um people who are you know uh first nations people um pe- people from migrant backgrounds the impact of the housing crisis on people who have mar- other um, marginalizations are is just astronomical um, and we have to do something to ensure People have a safe, affordable, secure place to call home. It is just a basic thing that we have to get right. And I don't think anyone would disagree that basic housing is a human right. And yet this government won't even put that in writing. I mean, you know, the state government released a a housing action plan, I think about five or six years ago, when all those people in the CBD were being turfed, turfed out who were homeless. Um, and it just seems to me that no investment that a government ever makes is is enough. It's just a drop in the bucket. Well, that's right. They just seem to be tinker, tinkering around the edges with every move they make. And it seems that um, they take it as an opportunity to cut red tape for developers, to give them further concessions, to give them further tax breaks. Um, and it just doesn't work. And it's almost like they're just creating these measures to tide them over to the next election, making these big announcements. And actually what we need to see is rent control to stop unlimited rent rises and a huge investment in public housing. That has been proven across the world to be the two main factors that that have led to a secure housing landscape. Um, and right now we've got two bills that are that are in front of us that are part of the government's housing statement. One is a tax bill, which which has lots of different changes, but it's part of their housing statement. And the next one um, is coming up next year. And we've told the government we are not in a position to support any of their housing plan until they come to the table on rent controls and public housing. And they stop their absolutely illogical and callous plan to destroy 
almost 7,000 public homes in the middle of a housing crisis. So how's that going to play out politically in the upper house? I mean, you guys basically are part of a fairly significant crossbench for the government to get its legislation through. Are the Liberals going to back those two bills? Like, what's your reading of the political tea leaves? Well, look, we, we've yet to see what the Liberals are doing, but it would surprise me if they supported a tax bill. <laughs> um, and so that puts the Greens in a position where um, we have a very strong negotiating um, position with the government to um, get them to come to the table on some of the things that we know will fix the housing crisis. Um, And we know we've seen at a federal level these kinds of negotiations where the Greens also have the balance of power in the upper house led to $3 billion of investment in public and community housing because they held off on the the big housing bill um, and they negotiated hard with their position in the upper house. So if the government's listening and they say, all right, what's it going to take for the Greens to support those bills? What would you what would you say? We've said very clearly we want to see rent controls. So the Greens are pushing for a two-year rent freeze to give wages the chance to catch up with the cost of rents. That means rents can't go up over that time. Landlords can still gather the current rent that they've got, but rents won't go up during that time. And then a permanent cap on rent increases of 2% every 24 months. That's what we're pushing for, but we're willing to negotiate on the details of what that rent control looks like. And we also want the government to halt the wholesale demolition of public housing across Victoria and instead fix existing public housing and build more. We've got a property um, that's a state-owned piece of land about 800 metres away from this recording station. It's the Gasworks site. It's at the top of Smith Street. It's 3.9 hectares of state government owned land. There is um, There was a plan thanks to the local community um, and the government announced it before the last election and the election beforehand of 20% public, social and affordable housing on that land. They have now walked back that plan. The entire site will be private market rate apartments. Now, that is absolutely disgusting that they have a vacant site. They've bought up bits of that at public at taxpayers' expense. They've decontaminated the land over many, many years at taxpayers' expense. And they're planning on selling that off to private developers in the middle of a housing crisis. So it's the perfect location for a public housing estate. And the local community is screaming out for public housing on public land. All right, so you're saying to the government, we won't support those bills unless you put a freeze on rents and you um, scrap the policy to sell off all of the towers. That's right. That's, okay. that's it in a nutshell. What are they saying? Because they must know that's your position. Do they know that's your position? They absolutely do know that position. Um, And, you know, they play hardball. um, But I tell you what, everything's impossible until it's not. Um, And we saw at the federal level they, uh, you know, they held out and they held out and they held out. Um, But we saw in the end $3 billion for public and community housing being put on the table because of the Greens negotiations. Um, We know that if they want to pass legislation, they need the Greens' support for it and they'd better come to the table because – the, the voices of renters are only going to get louder and louder. And longer that the, that the government ignores renters, the worse it's going to get. They're going to have to act at some point. They'd better do it sooner rather than later because more and more people are facing housing stress and homelessness. 
Interestingly, the Minister for Equality, Harriet Ching, is also the Minister for Housing. Uh, how do you think that positions uh, the government for negotiation? What do you personally think uh, her approach will be? Well, look, she's that's a new that's a new appointment. I don't think anyone wants the housing portfolio right now because um, you know they they come under a whole lot of scrutiny. Uh, we've got you know housing transfers. We've got requests for public housing letters sitting on her desk that have been unanswered for months and months and months. Um, It is a portfolio that is in absolute disarray and the priority is uh, lining the pockets of property investors and not ensuring that people have a safe and secure public home to live in. So do you think the government's in a weak position in terms of negotiation because they've got a newly minted minister who perhaps doesn't want to rock the boat so she doesn't have much kind of wiggle room really to negotiate? Well, it's it's yet to be seen what the dynamics are with this new, you know, with the the Allen Labor government and how the cabinet um, shapes up. Um. But what I've seen so far is that there's a lot of defensiveness about what a what a disastrous plan this is. My colleagues in the upper house um, have grilled her every single at every single opportunity about the disastrous plan that's ahead. Um, and you know we're really hopeful that with enough pressure from uh, the Greens and from the public that they will wind back their their illogical plan to destroy public housing in the middle of a housing crisis. Because a lot of those estates they're in green electorates. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, I, I mean, I don't know what the political plan is there, but, um, you know, it's almost as though they've given up on, um, on the public housing residents in that area. They don't really, they, they don't really care. Um, and we're going to show them that, you know, we will, we will fight this and we will win. And we've done it before. In ten years ago, they tried to sell off Atherton Gardens Estate in Fitzroy um, and privatise it. And... We came together with the community and we stopped them. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd think, well, if they thought they could win back those seats, they wouldn't be doing this. And we all remember the backlash to Kennett's privatisation and closures. Exactly, exactly. So um, I don't... I don't know what kind of pressure they're coming under from the property industry, but it must be pretty strong. Um, you know, they tried to sell off the Clifton Hill walk-ups in 2017 and we came together and we stopped them. Um, we've done this before and this community is bloody strong and their neighbours care about them. And so I think that, you know, we've, we've, had, we've had meetings with hundreds of residents over the last few weeks. We had a rally on the Collingwood um, estate uh, just two weeks ago where hundreds of people turned up um, from the community, from the public housing community and the broader community to say that they won't stand for this kind of absurd, illogical plan to demolish public housing. So I, I do believe that um, the community will see through the government's plan and will see it for what it is and will fight against it. I think that they're going to suffer um, they're going to suffer politically from these decisions that they're making. Um, and you know and the, the struggle of public housing residents and, and private renters are completely connected and we're seeing a growing movement, a powerful movement of renters coming together to fight the government's plan. Green State MP Gabrielle Dvitri there who chatted with me here at 3CR earlier this month. 3CR. Well, recently I spoke with Sean Mulcahy from the Victorian Pride Lobby's Rainbow Local Government campaign. 
Well, thankfully, uh, the amount of LGBTIQA plus counsellors in Victoria is bigger than ever. Uh, we've just recently had our first openly trans councillor elected in a countback in Colac Otway, a regional area. That's really significant. And we've got more and more um, lesbian, gay and bisexual councillors across the state. And I also want to acknowledge that Victoria has the first ever intersex mayor in any um, municipality in the world uh, in Tony Briffery and Hobson's Bay. And I uh, had the wonderful pleasure of joining Tony at the Western Pride Awards, which was celebrating the work of community organisations and councils across Western metropolitan area in supporting LGBTIQA plus communities. It was a wonderful night. I mean, the Rainbow Local Government campaign started off by, you know, trying to get all the councillors to fly the rainbow flag for Isla Hobbit, and every single one of them is doing it now in Victoria. Do you think that that was, you know, the basis for a tipping point where all of a sudden councillors were like, well, gee, that wasn't that hard. Now we can perhaps broaden out and do other stuff. And you're starting to, you know, reap the rewards from that. Yeah, and look, James, a lot of people might go, it's just a flag. What difference does it make? But... I firmly believe that it starts a conversation. People come along to these flag-raising ceremonies and they meet their councillors, they meet their council CEO, they meet their senior council officers, and they start talking to them about what it's like to be an LGBTIQA plus person in, in, in their local area. And then it gets a council to understand the needs of LGBTIQA plus people that live, work and recreate in their local areas too. And then hopefully the next step is for councils to do what Melbourne did and march in Pride March is another visible display of inclusion and acceptance of LGBTIQA plus communities and then do the work of establishing an advisory committee to hear from the community and then to develop an action plan that says and outlines what council's going to do over a number of years to support that community going forward. So it is absolutely fantastic that every council in Victoria now flies the rainbow flag. We're the first jurisdiction in the world where every local government is flying the flag on the same day. And I should note the state government as well too, outside our state parliament. And I think that's just the beginning of what will be some really meaningful reforms for LGBTIQA plus peoples right across this state. I don't think it's coincidental either that Victoria you know, is the first place in the world to do that because when you look at all of the LGBTIQ reforms, and I know there's still a long way to go, but if you look at the state government's leadership in that area and even activists like Rodney Croom are saying you know, how far Victoria's come over the last you know, five, six, seven years, it is no coincidence that we're leading on that local government front as well because of that state government leadership and putting the resources into law reform but also funding. Absolutely, and hats off to the state government for the work that it's doing in this space. We were really grateful to receive some government funding to run our last uh, Turning Local Government Rainbow Conference, which is a fantastic opportunity for councillors, council officers to connect and understand what other uh, councillors and councils are doing across the state on LGBTIQA plus inclusion. But we also know state governments will change and maybe not necessarily always change in ways that are positive for our community. And that's why it's so important that we have local governments doing proactive work to support LGBTIQA plus communities because we're not always going to have this opportunity of having a state government that goes out and funds LGBTIQA plus organisations but does the law reform that we need. And that's where local government, I think, can step in.
Absolutely. And if you look at all the divisions within the Victorian Liberal Party and, you know, the right wing elements within the party and the culture wars going on there, you'd have to say that if there was a change of government in Victoria and the Liberals were in power, that they wouldn't necessarily be champions of LGBTIQ rights or reform because of all those internal conflicts. Well, I hope they would be. <laughs> I'd also note that, unfortunately, one of the key proponents of this conflict, Moira Deeming, has herself had a record in local government. She was a, a city councillor in Melton, and during one period of time, she asked every one of the 79 councils throughout Victoria about whether they would um, erect separate transgender toilets and ban transgender people from using uh, toilets for men and women. Of course, that completely backfired, as it so often does, by people seeking to stir up these culture wars. And in fact, uh, the councils that responded um, acknowledged the importance of ensuring their public toilets and other spaces are accessible and inclusive for all of their community, including their trans community as well, too. And I think it just goes to show that these um, culture wars that people try and stir up every so often um, within parliaments or even indeed sometimes in council chambers, they've not got terribly much traction. Most councillors are wanting to support their community, uh, wanting to focus on the issues that matter to their community, and the community itself doesn't support these kind of nasty culture wars. They support LGBTQA plus, in, plus inclusion. They support their trans um, fellow community members, and they don't want to see uh, politicians, whether that be councillors or elected representatives in Parliament carrying on with this kind of nonsense. Sean Mulcahy there from the Rainbow Local Government Campaign. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.